well, welcome again to Hope. My name is Derek. Uh, if I haven't met you, I would love to. It's wonderful to be here uh, proclaiming the goodness of the resurrection and worshiping our Lord together. We have been uh, this spring kind of semester in a series on the Gospel of John, and we got to see John's beautiful version of Jesus' resurrection, his look into the, to the empty tomb last week. And for the next couple of weeks, uh, one of the things, John kind of uh, elongates the time after the resurrection, and we get to see Jesus interacting with multiple people. Today, we're going to see him interacting with a guy named Thomas. Thomas is, is kind of um, famous probably in the Bible. He's, he's got a nickname that he's carried with him really throughout a culture for the last couple of thousands of years, and that's Doubting Thomas. I think we're going to see maybe today that that's a little bit unfair, but we are going to talk a lot about doubt. So if you've ever kind of wondered in the back of your head maybe what's going on with Christians or Christianity, if you're here checking things out today, this is a great time for you to be here because we're going to talk about what it means to doubt and what it means to believe. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 20. I'll be reading for us verses 24 through 29. Let me just set it up for you. Jesus has risen. Mary Magdalene has come to the tomb and has found him not there at first, but then has met him. She's mistaken him for the gardener, uh, but then had a wonderful conversation with him. Uh, He tells her, go tell my disciples that I'm here, my brothers. And then Jesus kind of follows in her footsteps and goes and visits those disciples that are hiding off in a room somewhere with the doors locked. Thomas just so happens to not be there in that visit, and that's where we pick up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. It is powerful. It is active. It always does its job. I pray that you would speak to us, unstop our hearts, soften them, loosen our ears, open our eyes, or that we may believe that we may trust you more today than we did yesterday. We might know your love and your grace more fully and that we might love you more fully in return. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I read of uh, an interview the other day between the author Stephen King and Terry Gross, the host of uh, Fresh Air on NPR. And as they were talking, uh, Terry Gross got around to asking Stephen King about his belief in God. And he said some very interesting things. I want you to to listen to some of these quotes. King says this, God is certainly a subject that's interested me, and I think it interests me more the older I get. And I think we all like to believe that after we shuffle off this mortal coil that there's going to be something on the other side. 
So I choose to believe in God. There's no downside to that. If you say, well, okay, I don't believe in God, there's no evidence of God, then you're missing the stars in the sky, and you're missing the sunrises and the sunsets, and you're missing the fact that bees pollinate all these crops and keep us alive, and the way that everything seems to work together. Everything is sort of built in a way that, to me, suggests intelligent design. That's a beautiful statement from Stephen King. But he goes on to say this, but at the same time, There's a lot of things in life where you say to yourself, well, if this is God's plan, it is a very peculiar plan. And you have to wonder about that guy's personality, the big guy's personality. So what I'm saying now is I choose to believe in God, but I have serious doubts. So for Stephen King, belief and doubt are going hand in hand. There's a a musician, a singer and songwriter named David Ramirez. He's an Austinite and really just a fabulous singer and songwriter. And he's just recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, come out with a record of him singing old hymns. Actually, a lot of the songs that we sing in this church. It's beautiful. It's tender. It's beautiful craftsmanship and musicianship. And the words are glorious and rich and wonderful. The album is called Backslider. And it's called that because David Ramirez actually does not claim to be a Christian now like he used to. What's going on in the mind of a musician that would claim not to believe in God but still have this desire to record a record of himself singing a bunch of hymns? It's a strange combination, isn't it, of belief and doubt. I've probably quoted this to you before as well, but there's a a line in a Jackson Brown song that's just always stuck with me. He says this, he says, I don't know what happens when people die. I can't seem to grasp it as hard as I try. It's like a song I can hear singing right in my ear, and I can't sing, but I can't help listening. I think that's a really good description of a skeptic, a seeker, someone with a sincere desire to know, but who still wrestles with doubts. I can hear the song, but I can't sing it. But for some reason, I still want to record a record full of hymns, right? Maybe some of you feel like that this morning. Maybe some of you feel like you can hear that song and you can't turn it off, but for some reason you just can't seem to sing it out loud. Or maybe some of us have come with what we might consider smaller doubts, that still play a big role in our lives. I doubt that God is really good because I'm going through something that's so hard. And I doubt that this difficulty maybe ever will end. Or I doubt that I'm valuable at all, and so I doubt that God loves me. Or I doubt in the institutional church, and I'm not really sure what to do with a bunch of people who proclaim something wonderful but don't always live it out in their lives. And so we're filled with these seeds of doubt. Well, if that's you this morning, I have good news. We're going to find, I think, some encouraging things in Thomas, but even most importantly, in who Thomas meets in that upper room in Jesus. So this is what we're going to talk about today is is five things about doubt, five aspects and five truths that that I want us to know from this passage about doubt and about who we turn to when we are feeling doubtful. We ready for that? All right, let's jump into the first one, and it's this, is that serious Christians can have sincere doubts. Serious Christians can have sincere doubts. Uh, Who is Thomas? 
Well, we actually get a description. John goes out of his way to tell us who Thomas is. He says, Thomas, one of the twelve. One of the twelve would have been the twelve disciples, now eleven after Judas is gone, the twelve disciples that followed Jesus most closely. The twelve disciples that for three years of Jesus' ministry had probably left their homes to follow Jesus wherever he went. They were the ones who watched him perform miracles. They were the ones who heard him teach, not only in public, but in private. They were the ones who saw him raise people from the dead and heal people of leprosy. Thomas was one of the inner circle of Jesus. There are no more serious Christians in the world than Thomas at the time. Thomas is not some guy that's kind of just been left behind and is this skeptic that they picked up on the road kind of on the way to going somewhere. Thomas is one of the guys right in the middle of it. And guess what? Thomas is actually following in a pretty good line here because Peter and John and Mary Magdalene, all in chapter 20 of John, have doubted in some way. We read here that Peter and John get to the tomb and they see that it's empty and they believe. Finally, after three years of Jesus telling them exactly what he was doing, that he was going to be crucified and he was going to be raised, they still didn't believe it. The guys that spent the most time with Jesus still didn't get it. And you know, actually the Bible has a pretty strong lineage of those who are honest with their sincere questions. I want to read you a couple of things. Listen to this. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far why are you so far from saving me? God, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Those aren't the comments from some cynical unbeliever. Those are lines from the Psalms the things in the Bible that are meant for God's people not just to read, but actually to sing, to give voice to the feelings actually that we oftentimes have. And they are really honest, aren't they? Let me just say this really plainly. If you have ever had the thought come into your mind that if you have a doubt, then that means you're not a Christian, get that as far away from you as you can. If you've had a thought come into your mind that says, you know, if I ever have questions about my faith or about who God is or about what He's doing right now or about what's going to go on in my life or about what's next, if you've ever had that question and then thought, well, maybe I'm just not a very authentic person or maybe I'm not just a true Christian and maybe there's some sort of instability now in my faith and that's become a crisis for you, if that's you, take heart. Thomas was a really serious Christian, and he still had sincere questions. Because, friends, it is not the amount of our faith that saves us. Hallelujah. It is the object of our faith that saves us. We can have an incredible amount of faith in something that is incredibly weak, and it's not going to do us any good. Or we can have a little bit of faith in something incredibly strong, and we will be saved. Isn't that good news? Serious Christians can have sincere doubts. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, is that though serious Christians can have sincere doubts, there is a difference between sincere doubt and refusal to believe. There is a difference, actually, between what Thomas is going through here and what Paul describes in Romans 1 as suppressing the truth. 
is that when you know the truth and you willfully suppress it, that that's actually turning away from Jesus. Thomas is actually doing something very different. In a lot of ways, we could say this is the difference between a skeptic and a cynic. A skeptic actually has real and sincere questions, and a skeptic says, because I have those questions, I'm going to go check them out. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to ask those questions. The cynic says, I'm not going to check them out. I'm going to check out. See the difference? The skeptic says, I'm going to dig in and find the answers to these questions. The cynic says, I'm going to check out because I don't want any part of it. That's suppression of the truth. That's very different than having real and honest questions. That's very different than sincere doubting. Let's move on to the third point then. Is, and this kind of follows on the heels of that one, is that good questions are actually worth asking. <laughs> this is great. Thomas, maybe you, maybe you missed this part, is that they've, they've been meeting together, right, and Thomas is not there. Eight days later, so that would actually be a week later, we'll be talking about the next Sunday, they're there back meeting together again. They're probably worshiping together. So Thomas has not only not checked out, he's actually come back to church. That's really helpful for us. Because many of us think, you know, if there's questions in my mind, then really what I need to do is just take a break, and we kind of bail out. But what we're learning, actually, I think from here, from Thomas and from Jesus, is that good questions are worth asking. It's also amazing to see what Thomas doesn't do. He doesn't say, you know what, all right, that's great that you guys, you know, saw Jesus, you know, and that's cool, but really the important thing is the feeling that we get from this idea of resurrection, isn't it? The important thing really is that, you know, new life is possible and we should draw butterflies and doves and that sort of thing, right? And that's really what it's all about is, is just kind of the feeling and the illustration of it. But that's not it for Thomas. <laughs> Thomas is not satisfied with an illustration of Jesus. Thomas is not satisfied with just the concept of resurrection. Thomas wants to see it. And he says, I want to put my hands in it, I want to hold him, I want to touch him, because for Thomas, if there is no real physical resurrection, if there was no real physical atoning death for sin, then sin is not dealt with. If there is no real physical resurrection from the grave, then new life is not possible. Thomas is actually getting to the heart of what we all need to get to, is that we need a Jesus who's more than just an idea. We need a Jesus who really died and really rose from the grave because that is the real gospel good news that we need to hear. And for Thomas, just the idea of it was not enough. Good questions are worth asking. They actually build our faith. You know what antibodies are? Everybody knows what antibodies are these days, right? We're talking about them a lot with COVID. And talking to my friend Doug back there who gives blood regularly, and last time he gave blood, they actually said, hey, your COVID antibodies are up. They're higher than they used to be. And he said, well, that's weird. Why would that be? And they said, well, you obviously must have been exposed to somebody who had COVID, and so your antibodies went up in order to protect you. And I cool? That's what antibodies are, actually. They are the defense against the enemy. The enemy comes in and says there's this invader who's coming in and our antibodies are like the soldiers who go and protect us from that enemy. But guess how they're built? They're built from attack. We, we gain more antibodies in our bodies the more often we're actually exposed to those invaders. 
And, and I think sincere questions, good questions work the same way for our faith. If you never ask any questions, if you live your life just kind of blithely going by, by and just refusing to dig into anything that has any sort of meat to it, then you actually will be more susceptible to attack. You will be more susceptible to the invaders when they come in because your faith will be very thin. See, it's actually the good questions that build our faith rather than tear it down. It's the digging into the hard things that actually are the things that deepen our faith. Isn't that beautiful? So let me just say this. If you are doubting that God is going to do what He said He's going to do, ask Him about it. Talk to Him. If you have questions about how the Bible fits together, ask, pray. Come talk to me. I don't have all the answers, but I'll say, here, we can go ask together. If you have questions about who God is and who Jesus is and what are the real basics of the faith and what this good news is that we're talking about, ask. If you are doubting, ask. Dig in. God is not afraid of your questions. He can handle them. So go ahead and ask them. Here's a fourth thing is that Jesus deals gently with sincere doubters. This is a beautiful thing that we get to see about Jesus' character displayed in this passage. Remember, the disciples were gathered there before Thomas wasn't there. We're not told why. We don't know why he wasn't there. Uh, but he comes back, and they say, hey, we've seen the Lord. And he says, no, I doubt. I want to see him. I want to touch him. I want to hold him. And until that, I'm not going to believe. But what does Jesus say when he comes back a week later to visit his disciples? He actually says the same thing that he said to them the week before, which is, peace be with you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus does not say, peace be with, well, most of you, you know, except for that guy Thomas, who I'm not going to look at right now, you know. He doesn't even kind of say, peace be with you, and then do some sort of, you know, weird passive-aggressive move where he kind of goes off in the corner and, and, and gives Thomas the, uh, the, the silent treatment for a while. No, he actually goes straight to Thomas. He says, Thomas, come here, I want to show you something. And what does he show him? Exactly what Thomas asked for. Did you pick that up? It's almost the exact wording. Thomas says, I want to feel his hands. I want to put my hand in his side. And Jesus says, here, feel my hands, see my feet, see my side. Now, there's a, there's a gentle rebuke there as well, is that Jesus is saying, hey, that stuff you were kind of doubting, I got it all. But there's also a beautiful kindness to say, everything that you need, I'm going to show you that I can provide completely and fully. Jesus is kind and gentle to Thomas, and he's kind and gentle to us when we have real serious questions, even big doubts. If you have not read the book, some of you I know have read the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. We actually have a few copies on our book table. The book table's back, by the way. It's over there, and we've got a few copies of it. Uh, it's really just an entire book exposing this one passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly at heart. It's the only time Jesus actually describes his character verbally. And the first thing out of his mouth is gentle. Isn't that amazing? Just listen to some of the lines from this book. Listen to some of the way that, that Ortland talks about who Jesus is. 
Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. I love that phrase. It means that the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that on the day when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. So look to Christ. He deals gently with you. It is the only way he knows how to be. He is the high priest to end all high priests. As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to this high priest, you will fail to see how you can be in danger. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. But looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus approaches us with gentleness. And he receives our questions with gentleness. Here's the fifth thing, and the last one, is that sincere doubts can lead to serious praise. It's a beautiful end to this passage, where Thomas actually starts by saying, if I don't see and touch, I will never believe. But I want you to see how he ends. It's by saying, my Lord and my God. Now, that may sound common to us, but actually in the gospel accounts, there has not been a person who has called Jesus God until Thomas does right here. Now, Jesus, of course, declares himself to be God, shows himself to be God. John opens his gospel by showing us how Jesus is God, but we see on the lips of one of his disciples something that nobody else has seen, has heard. It's on doubting Thomas, who we really probably should call proclaiming Thomas, my Lord and my God. Isn't that beautiful? But Thomas started by saying, there's a song in my head, in my ear, right? And, and I can't sing it, but I can't stop listening to it. And he's finished by saying, I know all the words by heart. And I'm proclaiming it from the mountaintops. And I'm singing it at the top of my lungs. It's beautiful. Is that actually the sincere questions for Thomas are, are, an, are an act of deepening his faith. They lead to a deepened faith, not a lessened faith. Isn't that beautiful? His ability to dive in honestly with his questions, have actually found him in a place of deepened faith. The same is true for us. When we can honestly approach the Lord, when we can check in to him in a trusting way and ask him the questions that we have, he rewards us with a deepening of our faith and a beauty in our proclamation. So what do we do? Well, Jesus actually talks to us here at the end. He says, Thomas, you've seen and you believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Well, guess what? That's us. We haven't gotten the amazing opportunity to walk up and touch Jesus' side and his hands and his feet, though I think we will one day. But he has called us 
those who have not seen Him physically with our eyes, to see the beauty of who He is as displayed for the last two millennia, to see the risen Christ in His people, in His church, to see the proclamation of those who did see Him, and to believe. You know, we oftentimes use this word when we're talking about faith, and we say that faith is blind. Ever hear people say that? Blind faith? Well, let me just say this. Blind faith is not biblical faith. Blind faith is not Christian faith. The picture of faith in the Bible is not jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and just kind of hoping that something good happens. The picture of faith in the Bible is actually a little kid jumping off the side of the pool into the loving arms of a mother or father who's there to catch them. It's scary, right? If you've never jumped into a pool before, you may have some doubts, you may have some fears, you may have some questions, but none of those questions are about the arms of your mom or your dad. And that's exactly what we're called to, to bring our questions to the Lord. Yes, to be able to wrestle with things. Yes, to be able to even dive in appropriately to our doubts and our fears, but to dive in and doing so into the arms of the one who loves us and can handle all of our questions. He is the gentle one who is standing with outstretched arms waiting for us. Will you do that with me today? Let's pray. Lord, it is good to, uh, to simply reflect for me so, so oftentimes, I doubt in ways that are sometimes appropriate, in ways that are sometimes very sinful. Lord, I doubt your character. I doubt your activity. I doubt your love. Lord, I pray that you would make me like Thomas, where the doubting is rewarded with a beautiful proclamation. Show yourself to us, Jesus, that we might cling to you more tightly. Make us honest with ourselves and with you, that our questions might actually lead to a deepening of our faith. And Lord, as you always do, and you promise to continue to do, show yourself to be faithful. And we pray all of this in the faithful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.